Saving money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. Hi, this is Jalisa Arce, and you're listening to Crooked Conversations. In this week's conversation, we talked with Christina Mittermeier, who is a world-renowned Nat Geo photographer. She took this really, what's become a, an iconic photograph of a dying polar bear who was going through the trash to find its next meal. And Ever since I saw that picture, I wanted to talk to her just about the work that she's doing, how she's using her photography and her art to bring awareness to climate change, the impact that we as humans have on our planet, and what we can do to stop some of the harmful things that are happening to our environment, and what we can do to make sure that this conversation reaches a global level and that we know how urgent it is. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Um, so thank you, thank you so much for for joining us. You know, one of the things that I, I was reading about your work is that you said you wanted to, you wanted people to have like a deep emotional um, feeling when they saw your pictures, like almost become overwhelmed with emotion, and that is exactly what happened to me. I was on my way to Portland, and I came across the picture of the polar bear that um, that you took, and I'll let you tell our listeners more about that picture. But I couldn't stop sobbing for hours after that and that oh. really yeah and and that really was the impetus for me wanting to have this conversation with you because I you did that you did that for me and and Aww. so I wanted I wanted to share that with you I I know that millions of people have probably seen the image that I'm talking about but if you wouldn't mind just telling us about what you were doing when you came across this this polar bear and just your experience taking taking his picture the photograph of the starving polar bear that I took was a deliberate attempt at engaging a global audience in a conversation about cli climate change. And when my partner, photographer Paul Nicklin, and I saw that bear, we knew that it was an opportunity to make the world stop and think for a few minutes about what's happening to our planet. I wanted it to be an invitation for people to imagine what the future might look like, not just for polar bears, but for all creatures on this planet and for humans as well. And the emotional reaction that a lot of people had to it was precisely the one that I wanted to create. It's easy for us to talk about climate change and talk about graphs and talk about trends, but that is so such a rational way of thinking about it mm -hmm. that it doesn't really stir people into action. Right. So what we wanted to do was to invite people to consider what's happening. Yeah, and this image, it, it was so haunting because, you know, normally we see pictures of polar bears or, or we've seen planet Earth, you know, we see this this sort of magnificent animals, it's just big and beautiful mammals just roaming. And what was so striking about this picture was how how skinny 
the bear was and how, um, you know, you describe you described the picture as the polar bear kind of looking through trash for a meal. And and that was so heartbreaking to think that this animal is is going through trash to look mm-hmm. for its ne- next meal because so much of what's happening with climate change is eroding and erasing their natural habitat where they would normally get their next meal. Yes, and I think one of the things that's happening is um, we are getting so used to seeing these images of slaughtered creatures, Cecil the lion, all these elephants that are being murdered for their ivory, that that we're almost numb to it, you know, the trophy hunters in Africa. And when you see an animal that is not dead, but in the process of dying, the emotional response is very different. So we have seen not just this bear, but many other bears that are starving or dead uh, in the in the Arctic. But this one was an extreme case. And we were very clear that we didn't know if this particular bear was dying because uh, of climate change, uh, because we don't know what happened to it. Mm-hmm. it might, he might have been wounded. He might have been sick. But what, like I said, we wanted this to be an invitation to imagine what's going to happen if the landscape changes to such a degree that polar bears are not able to hunt anymore. Right. They're going to starve. You, you, um, in something that I read uh, in one of your Instagram pictures, actually, I, I read that there's only 25,000, about 25,000 polar bears left. And that's yeah. crazy to think about because yeah. that's not and, a big And still, number. you know, even though there's 25,000 only around the world, uh, we are still killing about 2,000 polar bears a year. Some of them are regulated hunts that are meant for indigenous communities in, in the northern latitudes, but a lot of it is trophy hunting, and a lot of it is, um, uh, you know, just poaching in places where there's no policing of hunting. Yeah, and that's and that's crazy to think about, especially with so much of what's going on now with some of those regulations being scaled back and trophy hunting being allowed in places where it hasn't been allowed for a long time and for good reason. Um, yes. So so as a response to some of the regulations that the, especially the United States government has just recently approved that uh, grizzly bears and wolves can now be killed in their dens. Hmm. Yeah. That's, and so I, like, I, that's, to, uh, that's so that to me, that's like that's like so sick that someone would. F- I mean, what kind of thrill do you get from killing an animal that's a baby that's, you know, that can't even defend itself? Like that's that's just so cowardly to me. But. I'll just, I'll never understand why people, why people want to take such a magnificent life just to have it hang from their living room. Yeah, you know, and and in the case of what President Trump is doing, allowing grizzly bears and wolves to be killed in their dens, my suspicion is that it has more to do with mineral and oil extraction, Mm. because if you don't have any wildlife to deal with, Right. Then, um, yeah, I mean, it's easy to just go in and make an industrial compound, right, if you don't have any controversies around wildlife being impacted. So my partner Paul and I are leaving this Sunday. We're going to go to uh, Katmai in Alaska and we're going to photograph just how beautiful the mother grizzly bears are when they bring their cubs out to the estuary. Mm -hmm. They're feeding on the salmon that are returning from the ocean. And this is how a healthy ecosystem is supposed to work. And you want to illustrate not just that this is good for the animals, because it is, but it is also good for tourism. And it's also good as a carbon uh, mechanism for sequestering carbon and for getting clean water and clean air. The benefits are so many of protecting nature. Yeah, and that's what I think it's so powerful about what you're doing with your 
with your with your photographs and and your storytelling. Um, I know that you started your career as a marine biologist, and at some point you realized that the data and the science doesn't necessarily lead to the kind of emotional attachment that 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 art might. And so, do you think do you think that we're that we're doing it wrong? Should we have a better balance between the science and the storytelling? And I mean, I know you started an organization, Sea uh, Legacy, that that uses specifically storytelling as a way to protect the oceans. But do you think there's a better balance that we need to strike or are, have we been doing it wrong with all the science? You know, I, I, I've been involved in conservation for almost 30 years now. And one of the things that I've noticed is that in an attempt to understand what's happening to our planet, there has been a huge investment in philanthropy, in resources, uh, into scientific work to figure out what's going on. I mean, we don't even know how many species we share the planet with. Mm -hmm. But all that science is very difficult to convey to a general audience. And as somebody who's been working in communications for so long, I can tell you that it it is to this day very difficult to raise money for communications projects. So unless we scale our efforts in storytelling, in creating this empathetic connection, and especially in sharing with the world the urgency of what's happening to our natural support systems, we're not going to win this battle. It doesn't matter how much science we have. If people don't understand how it affects their lives and their children's lives, we're simply not going to win. Yeah, I mean, and, and just, just staying on that on that beat for a second, I think some of us might take for granted uh, what you call conservation photography. And I think many of us might take it for granted because we see all these beautiful pictures like on Instagram. And I know that you're a big advocate for that platform um, because you can reach a lot of people with it. And to me, it just seems like if you're a photographer who's photography nature, that you're like automatically advocating for a safer planet and to protect the earth. But that wasn't really always the case. Like people would go take beautiful pictures of nature not necessarily for the purpose of raising awareness or driving people into action. So what were what were some of the of the pushback that you received early on in your career to use this method for advocacy? You know, it, it wasn't that long ago. First of all, uh, in, in the early 2000s, when I first became um, a professional photographer, I was attending all these uh, nature photography conferences. And most of the photographers there didn't really care about the, the, the impact that the photographs had or what happened to the places where they photographed. Mm. Uh, they were basically following each other, checking a list of all the species that they wanted to photograph. So everybody had a picture of a polar bear, an eagle, you know, down the list. I would raise my hand and I would say, can we use some of these images to help protect the places that we are photographing in? And most photographers didn't care. But Mm -hmm. I started realizing that there were a handful of people that were taking their images and using them as advocacy tools to make sure that the places and the species that they were photographing would be protected. I wanted to create a platform for those people to speak with a louder voice, to be able to raise money, to be more effective in their advocacy. And that's why I created the International League of Conservation Photographers. And I wanted to separate the work of nature photographers that are just interested in making pretty pictures Mm. with the work of conservation photographers that are interested in actually doing the hard work of lobbying on behalf of Mother Nature. And that's why I made a distinction and I called it conservation photography. And I wrote a paper that was uh, published in a scientifically reviewed journal defining what it is. Uh, so that we could create a movement around it. And today there's thousands of photographers that are actually doing engaging 
powerful, effective work in conservation photography. So yeah. It makes me really proud. Yeah, you should be because um, it's it's amazing work. And I think it's really having the impact that that you want it to have. I mean, many of us just, you know, wake up and we live our lives and we're not thinking about the ocean or the planet or, um, you know, what impact this cup of coffee that I just bought might have on the environment. And, and but then when I'm scrolling through my phone and I see your pictures and, and the powerful stories that you tell with each picture, it it makes you face it. So, and on that vein, um, I know you've done a ton of work just around like coral reefs and the impact that human activity has on the, um, on, on those ecosystems. And I'm just wondering as someone who loves to snorkel, is my snorkeling killing the planet? (laughs) I'm really concerned about this. this. This is a very pressing question for me. Um, so the first part of the comment is uh, the, the fact that social media offers uh, photographers like myself an opportunity to reach people every day with little stories that have some impact. People are so busy, you know, going to work, raising children, whatever it is that they're doing, that they're not really thinking about the planet. So if I can post something that engages a person, even if it's just for a couple of minutes a day in thinking about the planet, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it is. Now, <laughs> now in terms of your snorkeling, I think it actually has a very positive effect on the planet. Phew. I think the, the, <laughs> the more that people find opportunities to get out, to engage with nature, to support uh, proper tourism facilities. And, you know, at the end of the day, Tourism uh, can be a good thing or a bad thing. And we need to reward the people that do tourism in a good way. And for a snorkeler, you have to be so mindful of the the, the sunblock that you use, that it doesn't damage a coral mm-hmm. reef, that you don't, uh, you know, step on delicate animals or plants. And there's a lot of facilities around the world that uh, do it in a very proper way. Now, there's a lot of abusive ones that, you know, use, for example, dolphins to entertain people. And our job as communicators is to give you enough information as, as a viewer so that you can tell, you know, if what you're doing is good or bad. Because you're so busy, right? You're not thinking about it all the time. But yeah. if, if by, by looking at my photographs, you can learn something new every day, then I feel like I'm doing my job. So can you share your personal story and like what drew you to photography? And um, I think maybe a lot of people want to know how you become this world-renowned photographer. How did you do it? Yeah, you know, well, my story is, um, I mean, it's, I, I think it's very common. I grew up in a middle-class family in the mountains of central Mexico, and I fell in love with the ocean because I read books about pirates. And in these books, you know, there are these great adventures out in the islands of the French Polynesia and Malaysia. Uh, and I just, the, my imagination, right? The ocean and all the animals. And so when I became, uh, when I when I went to university, I wanted to be a marine biologist. And my father didn't want me to be one. He wanted me to go to school, become an accountant or a lawyer so that I could make a, a proper living. And my mom, she championed me. She said, you know, you go do whatever you want to do. And so if I went to university to become a marine biologist and what I learned was um, aquaculture and fisheries. So... I learned how to industrially exploit our ocean's resources. You know, how does a mega trawler work? How, does, how do we fish for tuna in the high seas? 
And it's basically how do we catch every last fish out of the ocean using technology? Basically, fish don't stand a chance. You know, we have mm. so much technology technology to catch every last creature of the ocean. So I knew when I graduated that I didn't want to be part of that. So I went to work for a conservation organization. And at the beginning of my career, I really focused on science and academia, and I published scientific papers. I worked with other scientists. And it didn't take me very long to realize that there is a real intellectual barrier in communicating science to people that are not scientists. Uh, there, People don't want to try to understand the complicated graph if they don't have the scientific understanding for it. So I was looking for ways that, especially the urgency of what's happening to our oceans, because when you think about it, 80% of our fisheries are either overexploited or on the verge of becoming overexploited. We have already taken out 90% of the big fish in the ocean. And we have dumped so much waste in the ocean. And just because we don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't have a huge impact on both the ecology of the ocean and on our health. Right. And I stumbled upon photography uh, almost by accident. You know, I realized that when people look at a photograph, it's almost like having an open invitation into a very different kind of conversation. Well, you don't need to be a scientist. You don't need to be an expert. You're not ashamed of asking questions like, where was this photo taken? What are these people doing? Um, it allows you to engage in a dialogue that is very important for the future of our oceans or for our planet in general. So that's how I became a photographer. And I realized that stories are the way that humans have been communicating for our entire existence on this planet. And so I decided that telling short stories about my own experiences was a great way of engaging people in an important conversation. Yeah, I mean, I know that you, you had given one example in Florida where there were like 68 manatees that, that died from hyperthermia because of how busy their environment was. Um, and that's really what got me thinking, like, is what I am doing as a tourist, as a consumer, affecting this this coral reefs and these ecosystems. So uh, to your point, I guess there is there is a bad way to do it also. Yeah, you know, and as consumers, we need to ask a lot of questions. Uh, when Whenever we go and, and interact with wildlife or with nature, I mean, we know that we shouldn't be picking up the flowers and that we shouldn't be feeding the wildlife. And still, people are so naive. And I often think, you know, it's not because people are bad or there's any malice in it. They just don't know. Mm -hmm. So the more... The more education, the more empathy we can build, I think is the better. Just the fact that you're asking, Julissa, is so powerful already that you want to know what's the right thing to do. I'm Julissa, and we'll be back with more of this conversation after the break. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Finn. Everybody has mundane tasks they could use help completing. Do Gen I ever. You do. Generally, these tasks take time away from more important things they need to do. Finn is a high-quality, on-demand assistant that handles the administrative aspects of life so you can focus on what matters most. There's just not enough hours in the day to get all of my tasks done. Psh, you guys know that. No, oh, you're very you're busy, busy all guy. the time. You're a busy guy. I need somebody to help. I need Finn to help. That's why you need Finn. Gotta get off that hamster wheel. Yeah. Or just get somebody on here. Or just get Finn on have the hamster Finn on wheel. the hamster wheel for me for a bit. That's you know, give me a break out. from the hamster wheel. And go drink from that uh, water bottle that puts out little drops at the side of my cage. Well, the thing about Finn is Finn can schedule a call for you. They can make travel arrangements. They can buy stuff for you online. They can book a doctor's appointment. I love it's this. Great. This is great. I used Finn to book a doctor's appointment. Really? And it worked. Cool. You're better. 
<laughs> you're better. <laughs> and you're better. That's what happens. And I'm cured. Like the best assistants, Finn knows your preferences, remembers the people you interact with, and integrates with your email and calendar. Finn can make calls, send emails on your behalf, pay bills, remember important dates, automatically get things done for you. And Finn, you know, Finn has saved, how much time do you think Finn saved us collectively? Uh, 40.3 hours. Amazing. An amazing number of hours. And so precise. Yeah. So was, precise. I've been, I've been tallying it up. Finn's been tallying it up. Finn has. And then, yeah. If you're someone who doesn't have 40 hours of work for an assistant every week, here's the best part. Finn is always available on demand, and you only pay for what you use. And there are so many people that need that. There are people who are just super busy, and they spend all their time responding to scheduling things and dealing with little minutia when they could better spend their time doing work, but they can't afford an assistant because they don't need a full-time assistant, and a lot of people can't get one. Mm -hmm. And Finn is here to help you do that. So once you try Finn, you're going to love it as much as we do. And as a listener of this show, I've arranged for all of you. I've arranged. (laughs) Look at you. Nailed it. Thank you. How as, generous. As a listener of this show, we've arranged for all of you to try Finn for free. No way. Just use our link, finn.com slash crookedconvos. That's finn.com slash crookedconvos to try Finn for free. Look at yourself. Your life is a fucking mess. You're constant. Look at Elijah. Look at him. The band is barely hanging together. He could use... He looks great to look, me. No, he's a, he's, he's a mess. He's a mess. You don't want to be a mess like Elijah, Mm-mm. all right? You want to be, you want to have shit together like me, and use Finn. Elijah, Elijah, Elijah. Hey, Elijah, Elijah. It's like, hey, Finn, can you win my Fortnite tournament for me? <laughs> hey, Elijah. It's great making fun of someone who doesn't have a microphone on. It's the best. It's fantastic. It's almost like bullying. That's uh, finncom slash convos to try Finn for free. finncom slash, and it's F-I-N. They got a great URL. Look at them. Finn.com. Pretty cool. Slash. Crooked Convos. Crooked sometimes when I when I look at some of your of your work, sometimes it feels like there is this like sense of loss, you know, of like of everything we're losing on the planet. Like maybe animals and species like my kids will will never know existed, maybe. Um, but you also have done some really amazing work around like indigenous communities and how they are trying to reclaim their place in nature or their connection to nature. And you talk about this concept of enoughness and how this this indigenous communities around the world have enough. And can you tell us what that is and what, what we can learn from it? Yeah, first of all, I don't want you to feel hopeless or sad about all the species that we're losing because the game's not over. And if enough of us care enough to ask the right questions, to take the right actions, to support the right activities, um, I think we can still change how the story ends. And a huge part of it is our personal compass for how do you navigate modern life with integrity, right? When you want to do the right thing. So I came up with this idea of enoughness because it's a personal barometer, it's a personal metric of how much do you need to be happy. And it really requires that we redefine our relationship with nature, I mean, with with, uh, our relationship with money and our relationship with stuff. And if we go back to communities where people live with so little, you know, they don't really need to have the latest car or the the latest pair of sneakers to, feel fulfilled, Mm -hmm. but you start realizing that they have a depth in their spirituality, that their relationships are really meaningful and valuable, and that they're doing work that means something to them. You start recognizing that happiness doesn't come from stuff or from even this false sense of security. 
happiness and fulfillment come from our relationship with nature, our relationship with each other, and having a, a means of fulfilling ourselves as valuable human beings in an internal way. So I have a new book coming out. It's called Amaze. And I've written a whole bunch of little stories around this idea of enoughness that hopefully will help people uh, start developing their own sense of enoughness. Yeah, that's that's really great. It reminds me. It reminds me of that. Um, like there's this story, and I don't know exactly how it goes, but it's basically a story about that is told in like business schools around the country, and um, where this like Harvard MBA goes to this fishing village, and um, he tells the fisherman like, oh, you know, you should you should fish twice as much so that you can buy a bigger boat, so that then you can hire people, so that then you can you know, become a big company and go public. And uh, and then the fisherman asks this question of like, well, why would I do that? Like, what is all that for? And then the Harvard MBA says to him like, oh, that way you can, um, you know, you can retire and uh, and fish and spend time with your wife and your kids. And the fisherman's just like, that's that's what I do now. <laughs> like, that is exactly <laughs> what I'm doing right now. Like, why do I need to go through this whole process? And it just, what what you're saying just reminds me so much of that. Of that it's story. true. You know, we are marketed for this idea that more is better and that there's nothing we can do about the way things are. And these are both things that are false. More is not always better. Quality is better. You know, the quality of our relationships, the quality of our work, the quality of our relationship with nature. Right. So um, I like enoughness because it's something that's personal. It's not something that anybody imposes on you. En enoughness is just like practicing yoga or practicing, you know, good credit good credit, uh, the, whatever you call it, what you call it, credit, um, I was going to say good financial discipline. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, enoughness is something personal. I, I call it a true north in, in having a sustainable lifestyle. Yeah, that's, a, that's important. I sometimes look at like, just like all the stuff that we accumulate over, like over the years, right? Like even with like, clothes, like, you know, there's so much like, I feel like now there's so many like cheap clothes that you just like buy it and you wear it once and then you never wear it again and I don't realize all the time just how like just even the clothes we wear right and how much how much we can hold in our closet and then where does that where does all that clothes go when we no longer wear it like I think yeah. clothes has become from? yeah What's the ecological cost of producing all that stuff and the reason we buy them is because for a very brief moment they make you feel better Right. And that moment goes away very quickly, and then you need to buy the next thing to fill the same gap. And so instead of doing that, if we started doing things like um, volunteering or helping others or being, you know, starting a hobby, you know, adding meaningful activities to our lives, then you don't need to buy all that stuff to make yourself feel better or complete. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. I also think it's funny sometimes, like, with, you know, like... Uh, like so I, I remember the first time I kind of went on a backpacking trip, even though there was a donkey that carried my backpack. And so my friend says that it doesn't count, <laughs> but I still carried, I still carried like a 10 pound bag. Like I think that still counts as backpacking. Um, but I just remember thinking how like silly it was that I had bought, like I had bought all these things that I didn't even use. And then, you know, had to have a donkey carry all this gear and all this stuff that I didn't really need like all I needed was just like my hiking boots and and enough water and sunblock. Yeah. And yeah, but I'm sure when you went to the camping store, you know, you were marketed for it. 
Yeah, exactly. To, to they feel got me. safe, you bought all this stuff. But here's the thing about indigenous people, even modern ones. I, I recently sat down with the chief of the Tsleil-Waututh First Nation here in British Columbia, and he said to me, at the core of every indigenous community, there is never greed. The community works for the benefit of everybody, not just for a single person. And especially in the United States, in Canada, in Europe, we have been indoctrinated into this idea that every person is for himself, you know, mm -hmm. that if you don't grab it, somebody else will grab it before you do. So we become greedy, we become short-sighted, and we become all about uh, self-profiting. And that's just not a sustainable, I think, or a healthy way of living on this planet, really. Yeah, I remember I saw your um, I saw your TEDx talk, and I could almost feel like like I could feel that you were like angry or like upset because <laughs> you were talking about Black Friday and how you had like a whole different talk prepared, and then you saw how people were like trampling over each other on Black Friday, and then you decided to talk about this concept of of enoughness. Um, yeah. But, Yeah, yeah. I feel I feel like it's difficult to articulate, but a lot of us already have it inside us. I think all of us have it inside us. So, what we need to do is talk a lot more about um, the sharing economy, and you know, I think especially young people totally get it. Uh, I meet people every day that buy vintage and reused and recycled because they care so deeply about not having this ecological footprint. Yeah, I recently signed up for this. Um, I guess like the, like this trial thing of uh, like like a recurring closet thing. So like you don't actually buy the stuff, but you can have like new I things to it. wear. But you don't, you know, it's kind of like supposed to be more envi environmentally friendly. Um, so I'm gonna try it and see how see how. Oh, it, I want to know how it goes. How it I'm excited for you. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But um, no free advertisement, so I'm not gonna say their name. <laughs> yeah. So you know, the whole jest of my work is to make people who care, people like you to let you know that every small act activity, every small action you take really has a huge impact and it's infectious. If you do it, then your friends will do it. And if enough of us do it, I think it really can turn the tide. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Postmates. I've missed Postmates. The best. I love Postmates. Not in my real life, though, because I think I am their best customer. We use Postmates all the time. All uh, the time. Tommy and I got uh, salads Postmated. You got a separate salad because I sometimes turn to the group and say, hey, what do you guys want to order for lunch today? And invariably, John says, I ordered for myself four minutes ago. Oh, uh, my God. Lunch delivery so is not a group. So Why not? Tears. Events. Why like not? It Why not? Middle school in the here? It's a pain in the ass. Instead of three people dealing with it, we can have one person go get it for everybody. Yeah, I want to treble my carbon footprint yeah it's just my, it's postmates it's on my phone it's personal i was it's, getting to the office i was hungry you know what that's the problem postmates today. is too easy for from for my bros here to be nice you know as usual your stomach and the rest of your life are at war wow, wow hard cool. turn you need to eat but you can't stop what you're doing to deal with it and the only fast things that deliver are not what you want introducing postmates the app that adds a delivery option to your favorite restaurants imagine anything you want to eat delivered You don't have to drive, park, or even talk on the phone to order. Just download the app and order 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Postmates will bring you what you want within the hour. You can even see where your food is and track your driver. I did that today. Love it was fantastic. I was at my computer preparing for this very podcast, and I <laughs> ordered a salad, and I kept reading the horrible, horrible news, and then I got a little alert saying that, that the food was arriving soon. I took Pundit on a little walk. 
bada bing, bada boop. The bag, guy drives right, grab the bag, I'm back at my desk. It's magic. 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 For a limited time, Postmates is giving you $100 of free delivery credit. $100. Wow, $100. Bucks. Don't Holy sleep on shit. that. Don't sleep on that. But for it's your, your first, first seven, seven days. days. So basically, get $100 of credit, use it in your first seven and days, binge. and lose it. Binge. Binge. Binge on binging. Get you know? yourself a, something nice to drink. A little bottle yeah. of Merlot. Don't wait for your friends. Just binging order. isn't just for just Netflix order. anymore. Yeah, order you for know? yourself Order for yourself, not, for not your friends. To start your free deliveries, download the app today and use the code CROOKEDCONVOS. That's Crooked cro- Convos. That's Crooked Convos for $100 free delivery credit for your first seven days. Save the hassle. Get the food you love fast at Postmates with code CROOKEDCONVOS. You know, just just as in like everything else, there is this question of of resources and prioritizing, and you know, you, you get to see and experience things that things that most of us will never see in real life and will never have access to. So, given all of these amazing places that you that you shoot and um, all these amazing creatures that you come face to face with, what to you is some what are like some of the most pressing issues that we should be concerned about? I think um, there's a huge number of them, and I think that's the problem. <laughs> right. Uh, climate change is the most important overarching issue that affects every single person and every single creature on this planet. And um, as we all know, our governments are dragging their feet in, you know, putting in place real solutions to climate change. And I believe that every single one of us needs to be an advocate and a spokesperson to demand action on climate change. It is so pressing and it is so scary. And I don't think we're doing a good job, a good enough of a job to communicate just how urgent and scary it is. So climate change, number one. But then the dwindling resources of our planet is the second one. Uh, where does our wood come from? Where does our fish come from? Uh, palm oil is an enormous issue that is devastating entire rainforests to produce an oil that is found in almost every product you find in a grocery store. Mm. And it's becoming, I think, really difficult for people to choose what's right to eat, what's right to buy. Yeah. <laughs> and what it requires is an enormous education. So when people ask me what they can do on behalf of the environment, is the, the easiest thing to do is to put the effort in educating ourselves on the products that we buy. It's yeah. a lot of work and it sucks to care. But um, it's the only way that we can make the right choices and that we can put pressure on governments and corporations to do the right thing. Yeah. You know, sometimes it it feels like there's almost this, like, privilege in even being able to care about the environment and and being able to make these choices and decisions, right? Like, I think about people who are just worried about having enough money to, like, buy McDonald's, right? And, like, here I am, like, thinking about should I get, uh, like, wild-caught lined salmon and and I think that, you know and I think that's I think that's maybe part of part of what's so difficult about putting climate change uh, and these conversation this conversation that we're having on the national platform so what are like what are some things that we can do so that it does get the attention that it requires without it seeming like it's this you know super hippie super um yeah I think hippie is like the best word I could come up with uh, yeah issue yeah. <laughs> The tie-dye crowd. (laughs) Yeah, Um, exactly. Well, I think if you think about where consumption comes from, it really is a matter of privilege. And those of us who have the means to consume more than the rest, you know, have the biggest responsibility to do the right thing as well. 
uh, one of the things that I do and that makes me really unpopular is I am the person in a restaurant that asks the questions, you know, where does this fish come from? How was it caught? Because I am not a mom that's struggling to feed two kids, you know, but when I ask that question and when you ask that question, we force that restaurant and the manager to think about where they're sourcing mm -hmm. their fish. I just went to a fast food restaurant to buy something to eat and they automatically gave me a straw. And I am that unpleasant customer that says, <laughs> I didn't ask for a straw and you shouldn't give me one unless I request it. Right. Because our oceans are dying, you know. So because we have the privilege of, of having the time and the means to ask the questions, I think we should. Yeah. And when enough of us do ask the questions, things start changing. And you see it all over the world where there's enough of an outrage of animals dying because they've eaten plastic bags to the point that mm -hmm. entire countries are thinking about banning plastic bags. Yeah. It is because people like you and I are concerned and um, courageous enough to raise our voice every day to be that person that nobody wants to invite to dinner because I will <laughs> tell you that meat is the number one cause of climate change. So we shouldn't be eating steak. And it's it's a horrible it's a horrible way to be, but because I have the privilege to to live a lifestyle that most people on this planet don't, I also have the responsibility to be the one that speaks up. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, and I do think that, you know, if enough people do speak up, we can actually make some of these policy changes, right? Like in Malibu, um, they, they've outlawed um, plastic straws. So they're yeah. like you, people can't buy them there. Restaurants can't give you a plastic straw. So they're going to have to make a choice between like metal straws or paper straws. Or no straw. Or no straw. That's right. Or no straw, uh, which would be ideal. Um, yeah. But so I, th I do think that if enough of us raise our voices, we can. It's, it's, because make it's not just Malibu, changes. Seattle, Vancouver, mm -hmm. New York. I mean, city after city after city are saying, okay, you know, this is an easy thing to do. You and I know that the, the, when the ra light turns red, we all need to stop. If the government puts in these simple regulations, everybody follows them. If our government says no more plastic bags, guess what? It's easy, it's right. gone. Yeah, even though it's like it's like a small thing, right? But like in LA, and I don't know if it's California wide, but I know in in LA at least, uh, you get charged like ten cents for a bag if they have like yeah. when you go buy groceries. Um, but here, like you know, now I think about it, and I'm like, oh, I mean, it's only ten cents, but I do, but I do, just get conscious about like, oh, I should take a bag, I should reuse the bag. And and how proud you should be, you know, for being a Californian. You guys just sent as a front runner Gavin Newsom to the gubernatorial race, and he's one of the most environmentally aware humans on this planet. So if California gets Gavin Newsom as a governor, you're going to see huge advances in environment, and hopefully the rest of the country follows suit. Yeah. Um, sometimes people say here that the way California goes, the country goes. So I hope yeah. that's I hope that's true on this issue. What what do you think are some things that we can that we can that we can do just to really drive point the home of like how urgent these issues are? Because I think part of part of the problem is one, it's far removed sometimes, right? It can seem like it's very far away. This issue of climate change, it can feel like you know of all the issues that we're facing. Uh, it sort of tends to t be in the back burner. So what are some of the things that we can really do so that people know just how urgent the issue really is? And it's not something that we need to worry about 50 years from now, because sometimes a lot of times the, the framing of this issue is, oh, we want to have a good planet for our children and our grandchildren, future generations. But it's also about 
the climate and the environment that we have today for us in our lifetime. Yeah, and our economy, you know, right. you cannot really grow an economy when uh, crops are failing and there's droughts and floods and so forth, right? So I think the best thing that we all can do is to become passionate advocates for the kind of planet we want to live in. Each and every one of us has a sphere of influence around us uh, in our jobs, in our families, in our churches. And when you share your passion for the kind of planet that you want to see, other people become passionate and infected. They feel empowered to care as well. And I find it really powerful to build community around myself and infect others with my care and my passion and the urgency I feel. And, and you know, when you have these conversations with other people in a positive and hopeful way, you can almost see how they develop their, their own spandex superhero suit. <laughs> Right. And they feel empowered to go and talk about it with others, you know, and we can do this. And it's only going to happen if enough of us care enough to stand up and speak loudly and passionately about it. Yeah, that's true. I always like to ask this question um, because some of the conversations that we have here can can feel a little like depressing. <laughs> and I love that, you know, I love that you said like this hasn't, this doesn't have to be the end of the story, um, which, which I think it's, it's right. Like we haven't finished writing the story yet. That's such a great way to think of it. Um, but I always like to ask people, like, what makes you hopeful in your work, in the things that you see people doing? What are some of the things that make you hopeful for the future? You know, I, right I find real hope in the fact that everywhere I go and everywhere I travel, I meet hundreds, if not thousands of people who care as much as I do and who are making a contribution in their own little way. You know, I'm sitting here with Fiona, who works with me, and she's opening an ice cream parlor here in our little hometown. And she's making sure that every single thing in her parlor and, uh, you know, that the ice cream is locally sourced, that the milk is made from, uh, you know, cows that are happy, that there's no plastic in her shop. How can you not be hopeful and passionate when you see people making such an effort? Mm -hmm. The other reason I remain hopeful is because I find hope to be such a beautiful and powerful emotion. I actually think that is it's the antidote to the apathy and the depression that so many people feel. And if you find a way to get up in the morning and do work that's meaningful, that helps others, that's generous, that's done with an open heart, you cannot but help feeling hopeful every day. And, you know, I'm the mother of three children, and I would love for them to live in a planet where there's elephants and polar bears and indigenous people. And so I get up every morning asking myself, what can I do today that contributes to a better planet? Even if it's just helping somebody else or being kind to somebody in need, all of that helps. Yeah. And I think it, you know, I think it's right that like there are and mm -hmm. uh, they're 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 making like very healthy, sustainable sourced meals. And in some places where people can afford them, they sell them more expensive. And then they have the same exact food in other locations where people don't have access to that kind of food and they sell it for a lot cheaper. So they have different pricing depending on where um, on where they sell it. But it's so that people yep. so that everybody has access to to these healthy meals and so that people can feel like they're also contributing. Um, yeah. You know, where, where you, you don't necessarily have to have all that privilege to do it. You, you know, that that feeling of contribution, of, of being able to make a small change is so powerful and it generates so much more desire to do more of it, right? When you feel like you've done something really good, you want to do more. Right. 
And so it's wonderful to hear that, that so many people are finding ways, big and small, to allow others to contribute. Yeah. And I'm really curious, do they say that a picture says a thousand words or something like that? I'm still trying to learn my, my idioms. English is my second <laughs> language. <laughs> um, but what are, I, I really, I really have wanted to ask you this question the whole time, which is what are like, just some of your favorite pictures that you've, that you've taken? Maybe just like one or two of your favorite pictures that you've taken. You know, one one of my favorite ones, uh, uh, the, the images that I like making, I would like to think that they somehow become iconic, that they stand for something bigger than just, uh, you know, a two-dimensional piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And so they're images that tell a little story and that remain in people's minds long after they are no longer looking at the photograph. Mm -hmm. So I would say the most iconic image I've ever made is the one of a Chinese lady that has a goose sitting on her head. Mm. Because the first thing you wonder is, why does she have a, a goose right. on her head? And anytime a photograph prompts a question, it's already a great beginning for a conversation. And so I love it when people ask me about that photograph, and I hope I get lots of questions about it. It's the cover of my new book, and I'm hoping that people will want to know more about where I took the picture, why she Is there something you can share with us? What, what happened to the goose? <laughs> Is there something you can share with us now? A little Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So I, I photographed her in a market in southwestern China, and I was having lunch and just fooling around with a camera that I bought in a street market. It was uh, one of those... Um, uh, what does it call? It's a single reflex camera. So when you look at the top of the camera, the picture is inverted. Hmm. And that's what I was doing when I saw this woman walking towards me and she had a goose on her head. And so I quickly metered uh, the light that was falling on her face and I snapped a couple of photographs and she happened to be walking in front of an open storefront that was very dark. Hmm. So everything behind her became black. And it's just a whimsical, funny picture. Yeah. And people love it. It makes people smile. So that's one of the ones that I like the best. And I have a handful of others that prompt that kind of discussion. Uh, even just the way you described it was so, like, powerful. So everybody the lady with the goose, it. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful picture. And what's one, one, one other picture that you've taken? Um, well, another one that I really like, it's a photograph of a group of four indigenous girls from the Kayapo tribe in the Amazon that are taking a bath in a waterfall. I was sent on an assignment to uh, create a portrait of the people of the Amazon that are losing their homes because of these dams that are being built on, mm. on the tributaries of the Amazon. And I was having a hard time uh, finding ways to connect the beauty and the importance of the river to the lives of people. And one afternoon that I was just really defeated and frustrated because I hadn't made any pictures, so I was just literally practicing my photographic skills, doing a long exposure on this waterfall. Uh, all the people had left for the day. They had gone back to the village after bathing. When into the frame walked these four girls and they stood in the, in the water and it just became such a beautiful, emotional picture that's full of mood and movement and the beauty of these kids. And that photograph was used uh, as part of a campaign to call attention to the effects of hydro dams. It was projected onto the Corcoran College for the Arts in Washington, D.C., right across from the White House. And it becomes an iconic image that stands for something bigger than just a photograph. Yeah. I mean, I think like, so many, I mean, anytime I'm like going through your Instagram feed or 
looking at your some of the books that I have of yours and I'm just like oh my god like I feel like every image is <laughs> it's oh, thank uh, you like so really much. impactful um I am trying really hard Julissa <laughs> <laughs> you're doing a good job um <laughs> uh so much of our conversation um I realized has focused on like the animals that are being affected in the ecosystems but just even the two images that you talked about right now are of people and I think sometimes, you know, we, we can forget that that uh, th this conversation about climate change is also really taking away um, the environment for indigenous people around the world. And one of the things that you had talked about um, was about this avatar syndrome. Um, oh, yeah. And can, can you tell us what that is? What is this avatar syndrome in indigenous communities? Well, you know, based on James Cameron's uh, Cameron's film Avatar, where uh, this tribe uh, is defending their sacred forest and their sacred tree from, you know, the military and industrial powers that are coming to log it down. This is happening all over the world. And indigenous people are defending their traditional lifestyles, their territories, their knowledge, literally with bows and arrows and sticks and stones against tremendous corporate powers. Here in British Columbia, you see the First Nations people, the Tsleil-Waututh First Nations, standing up to the government of Canada and to Kinder Morgan because they're getting a pipeline in their ancestral land, uh, you know, their, their waterways where they fish and where they have been holding ceremony for thousands of years are about to be destroyed. And when they stand up for their right to a healthy life, you know, they are called un-Canadian. For example, in the Amazon, you have indigenous people. There's a candidate running for the president of Brazil right now that says that giving indigenous rights, um, territories to indigenous people is a waste. <laughs> you know, that all of those lands should be used for development. It was like their uh, land you know, to begin with. This is happening with. everywhere. And these people are often find, find, they find themselves without a voice without advocates, without the tools of modern advocacy to lobby for themselves. And I feel such a strong responsibility to tell their story, to present them to the world in a way that's dignified and powerful, and to return some of their power by celebrating their connection to the land, their knowledge. You know, these are people that have been living on, this, on the same place for thousands of years they've been watching the same the same tide the same sunrise mm. the return of wildlife every year mm. they know a thing of two about living on this planet and we would be very wise to listen to them yeah exactly just to to you know i want to make sure that people that our listeners know ways that they can get involved or ways that they can um, help in the work that you're doing so what are some ways that people can can help in the work that that you're doing? Um, I've been so incredibly lucky to create a nonprofit organization uh, called Sea Legacy that uses the power of visual storytelling to engage audiences, audiences around the world. And so we built something called the tide because it's in the power of numbers that we're going to turn the tide. Mm -hmm. And by becoming a member of the tide, people get to participate and they get to contribute and they get to be part of a global community of people that are very engaged and very committed to seeing change and it's growing so quickly so we're hoping to reach one billion people <laughs> uh, on a daily conversation about our planet and giving them ways that they can participate every day with small actions that make a big difference yeah 
That's great. Um, well, thank you so much for for taking the time um, out of the amazing work that you're doing to educate us and to have this conversation with us. Ah, I, I loved it. Thank you so much. And I look forward to the podcast coming out. Yeah, me too. Sorry, one last thing. Promise. Yes. Last, last thing. Because we're oh, I'm both, loving this. Because, <laughs> God, because we're both we're both Mexican and actually we're from like 30 minutes from each other. So what is one place in Mexico that if people want to um, go see that something that is not Cancun, uh, but really get to know just the, the natural beauty of Mexico that you would recommend people go to? Okay, so if you were to visit Mexico today, you would land in Mexico City and then find your way south up to the mountains of the state of Morelos to my home city of Cuernavaca, which is one of the oldest colonial cities in the Americas. Incredible food, incredible uh, climate. It's called the, mm. uh, what is it called? It's called the city of Everspring. And then from there, you would weave your way to the beautiful city of Tasco, which is the <laughs> silver city on the city. And you can my find hometown. there, you know, the largest silver mine in the Americas where Mexican very skilled art, uh, you know, arts and craftsmen are making beautiful jewelry out of silver. And then from there, a couple of hours away, you're on the coast of the Pacific in Acapulco, which is our quintessential uh, Mexican Riviera. So that's the route that I would recommend to anyone. That's uh, that's a route I would recommend too, and uh, make a stop at you know in 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 my hometown of Tasco. That's great. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you again so much. This was um, this was just such a delight and uh, I'm so blown away that um, that we were able to to have this conversation so thank you so much muchas gracias muchas gracias so that was an amazing conversation and if I don't sound like my usual happy awesome self is because I am getting over a call a cold it's not because the whole world is weighing down on me although it feels like that sometimes um, I really hope you enjoyed this conversation I learned so much please share it please follow Christina on her Instagram and check out Sea Legacy uh, this is the only planet that we have we don't get a second one so I hope you learned a lot and make sure to stay hopeful <laughs>